Chapter twenty three of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty three. On the afternoon of the same day, Lord Blandamin was himself in Cologne. He went to the office of Mr. Martlett, solicitor by prescriptive right to the family at Fording, and spent an hour closeted with the principal. The house which the solicitor used for offices was a derelict residence at the bottom of the town. It still had in front of it an extinguisher for links, and a lamp-bracket over the door of wasted iron scroll-work. It was a dingy place, but Mr. Martlett had a famous county connection, and rumour said that more important family business was done here even than in Carysbury itself. Lord Blandamer sat behind the dusty windows. "'I think I quite understand the nature of the codicil,' the solicitor said. "'I will have a draft forwarded to your lordship to-morrow.' "'No, no, it is short enough. Let us finish with it now,' said his client. "'There is no time like the present. It can be witnessed here. Your head clerk is discreet, is he not?' "'Mr. Simpkin has been with me thirty years,' the solicitor said deprecatingly, "'and I have had no reason to doubt his discretion hitherto.' The sun was low when Lord Blandamer left Mr. Martellet's office. He walked down the winding street that led to the market-place, with his long shadow going before him on the pavement.' Above the houses in the near distance stood up the great tower of St. Sepulchre's, pink-red in the sunset rays. What a dying place was Cologne! How empty were the streets! The streets were certainly strangely empty. He had never seen them so deserted. There was a silence of the grave over all. He took out his watch. The little place is gone to tea, he thought, and walked on with a light heart and more at his ease than he had ever felt before in his life. He came round a bend in the street, and suddenly saw a great crowd before him, between him and the market-place over which the Minster Church watched, and knew that something must be happening that had drawn the people from the other parts of the town. As he came nearer, it seemed as if the whole population was there collected. Conspicuous was pompous Canon Parkin, and by him stood Mrs. Parkin, and tall and sloping-shouldered Mr. Newt. The sleek, dissenting Minster was there, and the jovial, round-faced Catholic priest. There stood Jolliffe, the pork-butcher, in shirt-sleeves and white apron in the middle of the road, and there stood Jolliffe's wife and daughters, piled up on the steps of the shop, and craning their necks towards the market-place. The postmaster and his clerk and two letter-carriers had come out from the post-office. All the young ladies and young gentlemen from Rose and Story's establishment were herded in front of their great glittering shop window, and among them shone the fair curls of Mr. Story, the junior partner himself. A little lower down was a group of masons and men employed on the restorations, and near them Clark Janoway leant on his stick. Many of these people Lord Blandemer knew well by sight, and there was beside a great throng of common folk, but none took any notice of him. There was something very strange about the crowd. Everyone was looking towards the market-place, and everyone's face was upturned as if they were watching a flight of birds. The square was empty, and no one attempted to advance further into it. Nay, most stood in an alert attitude, as if prepared to run the other way. Yet all remained spellbound, looking up, with their heads turned towards the market-place, over which watched the Minster Church. There was no shouting, nor laughter, nor chatter, only the agitated murmur of a multitude of people speaking under their breath. The single person that moved was a wagoner, he was trying to get his team and cart up the street, away from the market-place, but made slow progress, for the crowd was too absorbed to give him room. 
Lord Blandomer spoke to the man and asked him what was happening. The wagoner stared for a moment as if dazed, then recognised his questioner and said quickly, "'Don't go on, my lord. For God's sake, don't go on. The tower's coming down.' Then the spell that bound all the others fell on Lord Blandomer too. His eyes were drawn by an awful attraction to the great tower that watched over the marketplace. The buttresses, with their broad set-offs, the double belfry windows with their pierced screens and stately perpendicular tracery, the open battlemented parapet, and clustered groups of soaring pinnacles, shone pink and mellow in the evening sun. They were as fair and wonderful as on the day when Abbot Finnicum first looked upon his finished work and praised God that it was good. But on this still autumn evening there was something terribly amiss with the tower, in spite of all brave appearances. The jackdaws knew it, and whirled in a mad, chattering cloud round their old home, with wings flashing and changing in the low sunlight. And on the west side, the side nearest the marketplace, there oozed out from a hundred joints a thin white dust that fell down to the churchyard like the spray of some lofty swift cascade. It was the very death-sweat of a giant in his agony, the mortar that was being ground out in powder from the courses of collapsing masonry. To Lord Blandamer it seemed like the sand running through an hourglass. Then the crowd gave a groan like a single man. One of the gargoyles at the corner, under the parapet, a demon figure that had jutted grinning over the churchyard for three centuries, broke loose and fell crashing onto the gravestones below. There was silence for a minute, and then the murmurings of the onlookers began again. Everyone spoke in short, breathless sentences, as though they feared the final crash might come before they could finish. Churchwarden Jolliffe, with pauses of expectation, muttered about, "'A judgment in our midst!' The rector, in Jolliffe's pauses, seemed to try to confute him by some reference to, "'Those thirteen upon whom the tar of Cilium fell and slew them!' An old charwoman, whom Miss Jolliffe sometimes employed, wrung her hands with an, "'Our poor dear, poor dear!' The Catholic priest was reciting something in a low tone, and crossing himself at intervals. Lord Blandomer, who stood near, caught a word or two of the commentary prayer for the dying, the Proficistiary and Liliata Lutilatium, that showed how Adopvinicum's tower lived in the hearts of those that abode under its shadow. And all the while the white dust kept pouring out of the side of the wounded fabric. The sands of the Ardlas were running down apace. The foreman of the masons saw Lord Blandamer and made his way to him. "'Last night's gale did it, me lord,' he said. "'We knew it was touch and go when we came this morning. "'Mr. Westray's been up the tower since midday to see if there's anything that could be done. "'But twenty minutes ago he came sharp into the belfry and caught us. "'Get out of it, lads. Get out quick for your lives. It's all over now.' "'It's widening out at the bottom. "'You can see how the base walls moved and forced up the graves on the north side.' and he pointed to a shapeless heap of turf and gravestones and churchyard mould against the base of the tower. "'Where is Mr. Westry?' Lord Blandamer said. "'Ask him to speak to me for a minute.' He looked round about for the architect. He wondered now that he had not seen him among the crowd. The people standing near had listened to Lord Blandamer's words. They of Cologne looked on the master of fording as being almost omnipotent. If he could not command the tower, like Joshua's son in Agedlon, to stand still forthwith and not fall down, yet he had no doubt some sage scheme to suggest to the architect how the great disaster might be averted. Where was the architect? they questioned impatiently. Why was he not at hand when Lord Blandomer wanted him? Where was he? And in a moment Westray's name was on all lips. And just then was heard a voice from the tower, 
calling out through the louvres of the belfry windows, very clear and distinct for all it was so high up and for all the chatter of the jackdaws. It was Westray's voice. "'I am shut up in the belfry,' it called. "'The door is jammed. For God's sake, someone bring a crowbar and break in the door.' There was despair in the words that sent a thrill of horror through those that heard them. The crowd stared at one another. The foreman mason wiped the sweat off his brow. He was thinking of his wife and children. Then the Catholic priest stepped up. "'I will go,' he said. "'I have no one depending on me.' Lord Blandamus' thoughts had been elsewhere. He woke from his reverie at the priest's words. "'Nonsense,' said he. "'I am younger than you, and I know the staircase. Give me a lever.' One of the builder's men handed him a lever with a sheepish air. Lord Blandamus took it and ran quickly towards the minster. The former mason called after him. "'There's only one door open, me lord, a little door by the organ.' "'Yes, I know the door,' Lord Blandamus shouted as he disappeared round the church. A few minutes later he had forced open the belfry door. He pulled it back towards him and stood behind it on the steps higher up, leaving the staircase below clear for Westray's escape. The eyes of the two men did not meet, for Lord Blandamus was hidden by the door, but Westray was much overcome as he thanked the other for rescuing him. "'Run for your life!' was all Lord Blandamus said. "'You are not saved yet!' The younger man dashed headlong down the steps, and then Lord Blandamer pushed the door to, and followed with as little haste or excitement as if he had been coming down from one of his many inspections of the restoration work. As Westray ran through the great church, he had to make his way through a heap of mortar and debris that lay upon the pavement. The face of the wall over the south transept arch had come away, and in its fall had broken through the floor into the vaults below. Above his head that baleful old crack like a black lightning-flash, had widened into a cavernous fissure. The church was full of dread voices, of strange moanings and groanings, as if the spirits of all the monks departed were wailing for the destruction of Adam Finnicum's tower. There was a dull rumbling of rending stone and crashing timbers, but over all the architect heard the cry of the crossing arches. The arch never sleeps, never sleeps. They have bound upon us a burden too heavy to be borne. We are shifting it. The arch never sleeps. Outside, the people in the marketplace held their breath, and the stream of white dust still poured out of the side of the wounded tower. It was six o'clock. The four quarters sounded, and the hour struck. Before the last stroke had died away, Westray ran out across the square. But the people waited to cheer until old Blandamer should be safe too. The chimes began, Bermondsey, as clearly and cheerfully as on a thousand other bright and sunny evenings. And then the melody was broken. There was a jangle of sound, a deep groan from Tona John, and a shrill cry from Beata Maria, a roar as of cannon, a shock as of an earthquake, and a cloud of white dust hid from the spectators the ruin of the fallen tower. Epilogue On the same evening, Lieutenant Enifer, R.N., sailed down channel in the corvette Solibay, bound for the China station. He was engaged to the second Miss Bulteel, and turned his glass on the old town where his lady dwelt as he passed by. It was then that he logged that Cologne Tower was not to be seen, though the air was clear and the ship but six miles from shore. He rubbed his glass, and called some other officers to verify the absence of the ancient sea-mark, but all they could make out was a white cloud that might be smoke or dust or mist hanging over the town. It must be mist, they said. Some unusual atmospheric condition must have rendered the tower invisible. 
It was not for many months afterwards that Lieutenant Enifer heard of the catastrophe, and when he came up Channel again on his return four years later, there was the old sea-mark clear once more, whiter a little, but still the same old tower. It had been rebuilt at the sole charge of Lady Blandamer, and in the basement of it was a brass plate to the memory of Horatio Sebastian Fiennes, Lord Blandamer, who had lost his own life in that place while engaged in the rescue of others. The rebuilding was entrusted to Mr. Edward Westray, whom Lord Blandamer, by codicil dictated only a few hours before his death, had left co-trustee with Lady Blandamer and guardian of the infant heir. End of chapter 23 End of The Nebuly Coat by John Mead Faulkner